We are ready. Okay. So today I have with me a lovely entrepreneur by the name of Jody Cook that came highly recommended from a previous guest, John Warlow, the author of Built to Sell, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite, my favorite slash one of my favorite business books. Uh, It's kind of my business Bible, how I go about building businesses and uh, kind of the way I guess Jody does too, whether she did intentionally or unintentionally. She was a guest on uh, John's Built to Sell radio podcast. Heard her story there. John recommended I talk to her and was just super inspired. I think there's a lot of synergies as well. We're both kind of in the agency space. She sold a social media marketing agency. Let's start there. I like one of the things I like to do, Jody, in medias res, right? Into the middle of something. That's kind of how a lot of movies start out, right? I yeah. think of like, you know, they start at the end or the middle, the climax, and it's like, okay, how do we get there? So that's mm-hmm. what we're going to do here. So you ended up selling your company, what, a year or two ago? Yep, two and a half years, March 2021. March 2021. And is there any number that you can tell people? You know, I know that's the juicy stuff. Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, I can tell you that we were 18 people. I can tell you that it was a seven-figure exit. And I can tell you that my handover took two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't an earnout. There was not an earnout. Yeah, that was which is crazy for for the agency space, service yeah. businesses in general, as we know. Had you ever sold a business before, Jody? I was just about to say no, and then I remembered I sold a tiny, tiny e-commerce site that I set up to sell stoicism T-shirts, but it really mm-hmm. was tiny. I think it was like a it was like a three-figure exit. <laughs> It was a three-figure like, <laughs> Yeah. So basically, no. Okay. So basically, no. The answer is no to that. Yeah. So you had started this. I, I listened to a lot of episodes. So I don't exactly remember. I think you'd been operating this agency for a good five, 10 years, right? Yep. Yeah. So I had it for 10, just under 10 years when I sold it. And actually, funny that you mentioned John Warlow's book, Built to Sell, as being one of your top two favorite books, because I know that your other favorite book is The E-Myth. And if you do want to start in the middle of the story, I guess The E-Myth probably plays quite a big part of that. So it was 2014. (laughs) It was 2014. And I realized that I was running The Jody Show. And maybe a lot of agency owners are also running the insert your name here show where the entire business runs because they exist as a person and it would not run if they didn't exist as a person. And so it was a combination of reading the e-myth, reading the four-hour work week and booking myself a five-week holiday to Australia that was three months in the future that made me sort my act out and create an agency that didn't need me to run it. So that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. And one thing I want to highlight here, I feel like this is a relevant point to highlight this. You did it with a general manager in place and 65 SOPs. That's the number I really want to highlight here. Like it wasn't it wasn't 300 SOPs and trainings. Like it's a very achievable number. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, like it's not a ton. 65 SOPs. And I made those in the three months before that trip to Australia. So yeah. 
the actual the actual process of making those SOPs was I'm going away. I'm going to be on the other side of the world. It's like a 10-hour time difference. I need to sort out a way of my agency running without me. So this was just, it, start, it, it built into 65 SOPs. It started off as just a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet was, what do I do? What processes do I currently run? And I wrote them all down. And then it was like, column A was the process. Column B was who does it now? And that was just me and then column c was who's going to do it in the future and that was like a person that was a role that i was going to hire that was like a software program that i was going to start using Mm -hmm. or it was just like stop doing this stupid thing because you don't need to Mm -hmm. do it (laughs) at all and then column d was like when am i going to get this sorted by so that kind of became the plan of action and then my general manager came after that but it was it was very much as a result of identifying, I need someone to be an authority here. I need someone to be in charge of stuff. It's not just going to work if it's just me running stuff with a bunch of like freelancers or just other agencies. Yeah. So for each SOP, you had a current and future owner. So in essence, one person owned an entire, like an SOP. Mm, so that was the so the original spreadsheet was like the kind of the process spreadsheet and then each of the 65 processes I'd written out and I went granular on these it wasn't just like buying office supplies it was like this is the company credit card who's in charge of it what should you do Mm. what's the numbers like what should you do if this happens it was real if this then that lots of granular detail probably too much detail but I figured I'd rather put too much because then they can just if they don't need it then they don't need to use it um but yeah, it was those 65 that were then followed by various other people. I guess mm-hmm. a lot of them I wrote myself, but it was better when I got the person who was now responsible for that process to write them. Because I'd be like, hey, you're going to be in charge of this. Or, well, I'd ask them if they wanted to be in charge of it. Then they'd say yes. Then I'd explain the process. And then I'd say, can you take the notes and can you write this up? And then I found that they had much more ownership when it was them that had written it rather than following this set of instructions that I'd written. So it was a mix Mm -hmm. of me writing and other people writing them as well. Yeah. And then with the SOP library or whatever you want to call it, did everyone have access to all SOPs or was it kind of like sectioned out, you know, only certain people can have access to the the credit card SOPs and whatnot. (laughs) What was that? Yeah. I mean, I'd probably do it differently now, but back in 2014, it was just a very simple Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of tabs and each tab was each of the different SOPs. And then it got like exported into PDFs. It was really that simple. And those PDFs were in folders. There was a folder that was for everyone. There was a folder that was just for management team. There was a folder that was maybe just for accounts. It was like, yeah, it was exactly as you say. It was, you only need to have access to the SOP if you need to know it. Yeah. And then it is interesting. I see that working both ways. Like some companies are like, oh, everyone has access to all SOPs. Everyone should know how to do like every job in the company and and stuff like that. And I've seen that work very well, but I've also seen like, you know, your instance work pretty well also. I don't think there's any correct answer there. I was just more curious. And then did you ever take this from like Excel to a PDF to ever a learning management system of any kind? No, didn't take it to a learning management system. But I would say that the entire ethos of having a manual was very (laughs) much 
used throughout the team. So me and Joanna and the team leaders, it was very much like if we got asked a question that we knew was in the manual, we'd push back and we'd say, huh, it's funny that you're asking me that. I'm sure it's in the manual. And then we'd be like, have you checked the manual? And then someone would be like, no. And then they'd go the next time. They wouldn't want to be asked that question. So they'd go check the manual first. So it started to become this thing like, have you checked the manual? Check it first. Because I think it's all very well having the SOPs, but you have to actually get people to use them. Otherwise, it's no mm-hmm. use. And if someone does ask you a question that you know full well is already documented, yeah. Oh, yeah. the easy thing to do is to answer it because it just yeah. you know it ticks a box. They go away. You get that dopamine hit. But really, it's like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to answer this because this is the reason I made it. And I'd say that ethos went further as well with especially Joanna, who was my general manager and who was there from probably about 2016 till like she's, I mean, she's still there now, even though the company sold. And she was really good at firstly her job that was operational excellence. It was like she had one job description, operational excellence. Mm. But she was really proud of when she could solve something and not bug me with it. So she saw it as her duty to protect my time. And we had this, we kind of had this like phrase, I guess. So if something ever happened with clients or with team or with anything that just can go wrong in agency life, you know, you know what it's like. If I ever had to get involved, the phrase we use was like deployed, like we're going to deploy Jodie. And and we, we absolutely saw that as a last resort. And so one of the things that she really tried to protect for me, which I'm so grateful to her for doing is protect my, my time and not have anyone booking meetings with me. So if she had ever said to me, Jodie, I'm so sorry, but you're going to need to get on a meeting with this client. It was because she tried like, a million other things she'd be like I've tried this I've tried that that hasn't worked I've tried this I've gone back to this I've tried this but I just really need you for this and if that was the case it's like yeah okay I understand but it was it was so rare that that would happen because she really took it upon herself to to do that and I think that's what you want in that general manager or operations manager Mm -hmm. or that person they have to be proud of not getting you involved they have to they have to see it as their responsibility to put you out of a job yeah I want to highlight here for any role players, team members, people working in an organization, not as the founder. Like if you want to be really good at your job, if you want to be an A player, if you want to go far, like this is, this is the Bible right here. Mm, Like don't, don't deploy Jody. Don't deploy Jordan. (laughs) Like try to avoid that. And I've thought about before, I swear I heard this once and perhaps it was even on John's show, an entrepreneur that was talking about a, a KPI that gets filled out on a weekly scorecard by each team member. Like how many times did you ask your manager a question? And the lower that number, the better. But I was, you know, I'm, I'm too scared to implement something like that because of the mm. obvious unintended consequences mm. of that. I feel like. I mean, split it out. Like how, how many times did you ask your manager a new question? How many times did you ask your manager an old question? I don't want old questions sure. because they should be documented, but new questions, I guess. Yeah, I want new questions, but I still want someone to come with me to come to me with at least a bit of the reason why the problem happened in the first place. And then at least a few of the responses or the solutions that they're suggesting. I actually want to get more to your origin story with the business. Like I'm assuming you started it because you were you start you probably started as a freelancer. You like doing social media stuff, you're good at it. And am I correct in my assumption? Yeah. So okay. I was, yeah. So let's talk about like, 
because this is where people get stuck going from freelancer to to manager to executive to owner of the business you know running a business and owning a business are two very 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 different things i, I just feel like only 10 percent of five or ten percent of people in the agency space ever really make that leap so geez it's like how when did you start what were the factors that made you start thinking about that what was the year how many years in like when did you start thinking about making that leap so i started the business in august 2011 with a very simple business plan that was just two words get clients (laughs) and then started rocking up to networking events saying hey i'm jody i'm a social media manager at that time social media managers didn't there weren't many of them around they didn't really exist social media was such a new thing i was setting up twitter accounts for clients because they hadn't really they hadn't got them and i was convincing people why they should be on social media it was such a different ball game to what it's like now and then once i started getting clients I'd heard somewhere, probably in a business book, because I'd started reading them by that point, that it was just a really good idea to get recurring monthly revenue. And recurring monthly revenue was great. And project-based work was rubbish because you had to keep quoting for it. And even like right up to the day we sold, I didn't like doing project-based work. We were 80% recurring revenue because I was like, this is how you do it. You just have, have this going every single month and you don't have to think about it. So I think I was about eight months in and I had 40 hours a week of client work that I was doing, but I still wanted to, I still felt like I wanted to go networking and meet people and get new clients and work with new customers, but I wasn't losing any customers. So I didn't really know how that was going to work. And so I'd say that was the crossroads. That was the idea where on one hand I could keep going as a freelancer and just maybe charge more or just keep that client base and do that. And that would that would be totally fine. Loads of people do that. Or I could start hiring. So I started, I started hiring and I honestly didn't know what I was doing at all. I think I got my mom to join me for the first person I interviewed. I was probably more nervous than they were. It was the first time I'd ever interviewed anyone. I actually hired the first person I ever interviewed because mm. he seemed cool. I didn't really know what yeah. I was ranking him based <laughs> on, but I guess the idea was when I was sat in front of him, I was just thinking, what will my clients think of this person? And I decided that they would quite like him. And he did some cool stuff and he'd done some cool projects and he seemed pretty nice. So he he was on board, he was hired. And so what I did then was I just went about passing my clients to him and training him to pretty much do, do my job and do exactly what I was doing. So I think that was about eight months in. I hired the second person pretty soon after that because I realized that once I'd handed out, handed over my clients, I had all this time to do sales. And so sales came pretty quickly. So I think the second person I hired within another couple of months after that. And then that's when I then was not having any clients myself and focusing all on Mm -hmm. sales. And then it kind of leads to another bottleneck where you're like, well, I'm I'm doing the selling and then sometimes clients don't really let go of you when you do the selling and then you hit a new blocker. So it was like, this is just the agency game, right? We're just finding new problems to solve. And they're all expected problems because every single agency owner hits them in the exact same order. But that was definitely the next one. At the time when you hired your first person, I'm assuming they were a local hire or in an English speaking country primarily and not overseas somewhere. That's what it sounds like. Was there ever a thought as to, you know, maybe I should hire from, you know, overseas or like if you, and you hired locally, like what was the percentage of, 
of revenue at that time, like roughly, I'm sure you don't have the exact number, but you know, that's hard for a lot of agency owners to, to square, like, yeah. you know, hiring someone in my country, uh, very, very, very expensive, like $5,000 a month. Like what did, what were the economics of that? I don't remember exactly, but I remember that hiring overseas didn't even occur to me at the time. I think I was, I was way pre all that. I was pre for our work week. I was pre like Upwork. Maybe that year was pre Upwork. I don't know, but it just wasn't even a thing. So I think I advertised with like a local university, took on board a new graduate who kind of roughly spoke the lingo of social media and who I figured I could just teach my methods because I mean, at the time, and maybe even now there's not this giant rule book on exactly how to do it and i really i really enjoyed that it wasn't like we were starting an accountancy firm where the rules of accountancy has been the same for like decades and decades it was like we're kind of making it up as we go along and so it's okay to get someone who is fresh out of fresh out of university i was so local at that point i don't, i hardly yeah. did anything even though we were representing clients online i didn't do that much online myself it was like going to physical networking events we had a physical office i turned up to the physical office so it was just not any question about mm-hmm. about hiring someone who wasn't local mm. Out of curiosity, I guess it was 2014 then or, or whenever, what was the, the retainers that you were charging people, like $2 per month because that was a big retainer at the time <laughs> before oh, yeah. inflation? So 20, 2011 was when I first started. I'm trying to remember. I reckon a kind of small client would have been like $500 a month. And at mm-hmm. that time, probably a big client would have been $2,000 a month. And that was probably the range. Yeah, I feel like the the averages are double that now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was it was super different, and it was it was again it was like making it up as you go along because you're like, no one had a social media budget because it just didn't exist. So you were trying mm-hmm. to convince them that it should be part of their marketing budget, and maybe yeah. even a lot of the clients that we had at the time they didn't even have a marketing budget. It was just like, what do you mean a budget? We want it as cheap as possible. So then you just test out a few numbers, and you'd see who said yes, and then that was your price. So you had, you know, 500 to $2,000 per month. I mean, roughly you had 40 hours of work per week. How many clients was that roughly? Maybe 20. No, it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been 20. It would have been maybe like 10, but, but various mm-hmm. different sizes. Back then, probably very important to know, we didn't have like a niche or a niche as you guys call mm-hmm. them. It was like, we didn't niche down at all. It was just social media and social media management and we were representing people across all different platforms i think uh-huh. if i was starting an agency now i would niche down platform and i would probably niche down industry so i'd be like we do instagram for dentists or like we do facebook ads for e-commerce furniture companies or something like that like I, that's what i would do now but back then it was so mm-hmm. different the kind of analogy i've used before is rabbits deer and elephants to describe the types of client sizes and we were mainly going after like rabbits and deer as to the kind of size. So like the idea with rabbits is that they're those kind of $500 a month clients or whatever your, um, whatever your kind of lowest tier is. There's loads of them around. Once you catch one, you can catch loads of the same because they all talk to each other and they just kind of multiply. Deer take a, like a bit more effort to catch, but they can kind of feed you for longer. They're more sustained. They're like a nice juicy um, size, but they're not like so sought after like elephants and elephants might be those that you pitch for. So it takes like maybe two or three people to do this multi-stage pitch. But once you have them, like they're really big, they're really juicy. They can last for a very long time and they can kind of feed you very well. We were very much 
we started with rabbits. We, we, we went on to deer. And then throughout the 10 years, we had like a few elephants, but we weren't really set up to look after elephants. Like we didn't really go after pictures. We didn't really try and get really big clients. At, at, at the time, we had one that was 20% of our revenue. But when mm-hmm. they clicked their fingers everything stopped uh-huh. and i and i really hated the idea that all our other clients would have to suffer because this elephant was stomping around so i didn't really enjoy that we were we were much better deer hunters mm. now i'm going to go back to this and you're going to see what i'm doing i'm reverse engine cuz i'm just so interested in this backtracking so you had you had uh, about 10 clients and you made this first hire i'm guessing that's you know, 15 to $20,000 or, or pounds per month, perhaps. How much did you pay your first hire? If you don't mind I have me no asking. idea. I honestly don't have know. no idea. It was such a long so time interested. ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I need to, I'll dig it out and I'll, um, we can put it in the show notes or something. I will find out. So you are, you have an account manager at this point then. And yep. how do you, did you transition current clients to, hey, here's this new person, I'm out? Like, what was that like? Yeah, so I started, I think I started bringing him with me to meetings. I started giving him different kind of tasks in the work to do and started seeing how he got on. I think at first I was a bit scared about it. And I definitely at first retained being the main point of contact for the client. So it was very much he was a kind of assistant account manager and I guess I was still the main account manager until he could until he could kind of take over completely and then take over communications which which is a really big part of it but I remember that we had this one client who was a comedian and um he had this act and he was doing all these shows around the country and he just did Edinburgh Fringe Festival and he had all this like all these ideas and this potential and we were representing him on Twitter. And mm. I remember I got a call from him being like, hey, I want to talk to you about your no team member. And I was like, oh, my God, no, what's he, what's he done? Because I just handed over this person. He might have been the first one I handed over. I was just really worried. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so, I was prepared to be like, I'm so sorry. I'll take it back. You know, I'll never pass you over again. And he went, no, no, no it's really, it's really good. He's actually written some really good tweets for me. I'm wondering if you would mind if I use them in my comedy show. And so he actually used these tweets that my team member had, had written. And I went and saw him in a comedy show and he repeated them back on stage as if they were his. Nice. And I was like, so proud. And so I feel like that was the moment where I just thought, this is going to be okay. If we can do it with that guy, we can do this with anyone. It's not yeah. going to hold us back. What was like the the frame that you gave to your clients, you know, as to why they should accept this new person and, and you leaving? How'd you frame that? I don't think I said I was leaving. I think I said I was right. getting help with their account. Right, right, right. I think I said you were still that I would, the point of contact. Yeah, yeah, for to start with, and yes. then eventually, I think I just slowly started being like, "Well, hey, we've got this meeting coming up, or we've got this report. Like, are you okay to send it them? Like, what do you need from me? Are you comfortable with this?" I guess I was making sure that the team member was comfortable first because I figured happy team like they come first. Your, your team members are happy, your clients are happy. And it just it just works like that. So that started happening. He became more confident. He realized that this client was like, not some dragon that was out to get them, but just a nice guy. And then and then it worked from there. Yeah. What was that? It, again, long time ago, you might not remember, but one to three months transition period. What, what was that time frame? Probably about one to three months, yeah. At first, it would have been he was kind of an assistant, and then it would have Mm -hmm. been gradually take on more clients and and gradually speak to more clients. And then after that, it was like, Jodie, who's Jodie? 
And then that allowed me to do more sales and that allowed me to hire more people. And I think probably something important to mention as well is I really wanted to be irrelevant at this point because I think I'd probably figured out maybe from reading the e-myth or from reading the four-hour work week that it wasn't a good thing to want to be so important that everyone needs you all the time. I think I was kind of past that. And I named the agent because my name is Jodie Cook and the agency was called JC Social Media. So at the start, I probably hadn't Mm -hmm. been thinking about that. But by that time, it was like, no, this is really good. The more invisible I am to clients, the more I can be visible like online and at events and things, the more that we grow, but the more I don't need to do all the work all the time. Mm -hmm. So then when you had some account managers in place, what was like... What were some of the operational or fulfillment service delivery challenges you started encountering? Mm. So I think getting people up to speed, given that we were doing such a wide range of services, was probably a big challenge. And so what we found in the team was that people would naturally just be good at some platforms and less bothered about other other ones. And then eventually that was to do with the sales team because they'd make sure that they were giving the account managers the platforms of the clients that suited their skills. What else? I think that once you as the owner are not involved in the communication, you still want to make sure that it's in your style, in your, on brand. You still want to make sure that it's like someone's carrying through the reputation of the company in the right way but that was a lot to do with the training I think if like no one's no one's going to join your team and just know exactly how to run a client meeting how you want them to they're just not going to know you have to train them and that starts by it starts by them seeing what you do because they'll just mirror it and they'll just they'll just shadow you and they'll repeat back your phrases and then you kind of don't need to worry about it because they'll work it out from there but the manual was a really big part of that because we went down to such granular detail that it didn't leave anything to chance. So it was things like, you know, when you open a conversation with a client, tell them about something exciting. Don't tell them about your really long commute. Don't tell them about how like ill you're feeling or like that, that, like, you know, tell them something positive, ask them about them, be interested in them. And we would put such, it sounds like such basic stuff to you and me, or it might sound like such basic stuff to a business owner, but if you include it, it's just like, Oh, okay, that's what I do. And then someone Mm -hmm. follows it and then they just take it as normal and then all of a sudden they're running meetings that you're like you're really you feel really proud to have them as part of your team so training and then trusting was like a big ethos just a big kind of mantra that I had throughout all of that so then going along the journey here you've replaced yourself in fulfillment essentially you then replace yourself in sales perhaps because people are having trouble detaching from you like oh what you're you sold me on the process now you're going away like So what came next? What was the next phase? Mm, I think detaching myself from sales was probably a bigger job than Mm. detaching myself from account management, weirdly. And what I realized is that I was the main person who did sales for quite a long time, for probably about the first four years. And then after that, I had one sales support and then eventually two and one was business development manager and one was kind of an ops manager and they both did a fantastic job but then they both kind of did almost like did the same role as each other um but just at different times they were both part-time but both of those people had never been account managers so no matter how close they got with a prospect or how close they got with a client that client would never ask them to write a tweet but they would ask me to write a tweet because they knew that I could do it so 
that was the hard thing. It was like, yeah, I know, but that's not my job anymore. And people always want like past versions of you. They want the version of you that's in their head, not the version of you that actually exists. So if someone sees it as, oh, this business owner is selling me this contract and then they're going to deliver it, that's what they believe. And then they're going to be disappointed when that doesn't really happen. So what I figured out was just that it wasn't really going to work unless I wasn't in that in that process altogether and so then I became really behind the scenes and those two ran it amazingly and then it was a similar situation as with Joanna it was like do you need to deploy Jodie do you need help with this proposal do you need help with something else and we had this goal within the within the sales team where it was like they would if they could take an inquiry because all our inquiries were inbound so they would take the inquiries that came through each day they would speak to them they would write a proposal they would like follow them up do all that kind of stuff and then sign them up and hand them over their goal was to do all of that without me and that's their measure of success that was their kind of kpi and so because we were always tending towards this write perfect proposals or do things without jody it was like they're both very competitive and very like motivated to do that so it, it worked out pretty well in the end, but that had to be the goal in order to get there. As you're talking, I'm realizing in a, a, a mini epiphany about myself that I've been doing recently. I think for much of the past year, I deploy myself sometimes without even yeah. my team asking. I uh-huh. got kind of like a parent that solves peop, you know, their kids' problems for them. I'm kind of in a way doing that sometimes. So now I'm aware of it. <laughs> yes. I, it's yeah. so normal. It's so normal because you're, I mean, with everyone, not just not just you, but with everyone, it's going to be ego getting involved because we like feeling needed. We like solving problems. That's probably one of the major things that I kind of missed after I sold. It was like, oh my God, no one needs me anymore. And it's really <laughs> strange because at the time you're like, it's nice to have that buzz of your email or your phone and being like, oh, Jodie, we've got this really hard problem. Only you can solve it. It's like, who wouldn't want to hear that? But the thing is, you just keep yourself playing so small if you do that. So then you just have to, as hard as it is, you have to find the bigger problems to solve and stop delving in and trying to solve the smaller ones. Well, this is wonderful. You're, just your voice is a pleasure to listen to. You've got a very nice voice. I appreciate you coming on and sharing today. I want to talk about Coach Vox here because I'm pretty intrigued by that. Uh, And that's coming out September 1st. We'll talk about that. But is there anything, any bow that you would put on your uh, agency journey? And of course, people, I would recommend, I just, here's my thing, Jody. Like I don't, I don't try and repeat, you know, I hear someone on another interview and I did this early on, you know, five years ago. I'd hear someone on another podcast and then I try to replicate like the same podcast. I don't do that anymore. You can go listen to Jody on Built to Sell, hear how she achieved selling a business without an earnout and stuff like that. I, I highly recommend that interview on Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow and Jody Cook. Uh, but is there any any bow that you'd put on your agency journey here? Yes, for sure. I think I would say if there are any agency owners listening, not sure the direction that they want to take their agency in, I would say decide what game you're playing because you can play any game with agency. It's kind of a magical business. You can use it as a lifestyle design business that you can go and travel the world while someone else runs it. You can use it as a performance business that you could grow to be really big. You could acquire other agencies. You could play that game. Or you could use it as a, this is my art. Like, I really love what I do. I'm going to be the artist and I'm just going to build a team around me that helps me be an artist. Or you could play the, I'm going to build it and sell it game. It's like, 
anything you can you can do anything you want but it's just decide the game that you want to play first because I don't yeah. think that you should straddle the strategies and it's so easy to do that when other people are running agencies with their with their idea in mind of what success looks like but I'd say decide what it is to you first and then work back from there quick question actually I meant to ask this earlier do you ever have doubts early on about the business model or maybe I should pivot and do something else like do you ever <laughs> think about that yeah, all the time. One of my first bosses actually was a owner of a print and promotion company. We would sell promotional like mugs and t-shirts and like merch, like swag basically. And I remember he was always talking about how many easier ways there were of making money. And so when I was running an agency, I had that in my head, like, sure, there are easier ways of making money. Like there must be other than, you know, clients and team members and all this mm-hmm. stuff that we have to deal with. But then I just thought, everyone thinks that. Everyone thinks there are easier ways of money. Everyone thinks there are easier ways of making money. It's far better to just shut up and just make money. <laughs> yeah, than, exactly. Like, always be having the doubts and letting the doubts take yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. Even an example yesterday, a shiny object that crossed my path. It was, it was this tweet, you know, this guy, you know, I, I know this guy who came in, bought car dealerships, turned them around and and sold them at his peak. He did four in a three year span. And, you know, he had a private jet and all that. And I was like, and, and the, the point of the tweet was, do you really need to start a, a, a sexy, like tech software business? Like, no, <laughs> yeah. like boring businesses win. And I was just like, maybe I should do a boring business too sometime. Like, but yeah, just, shut, just shut up and, and continue just, the path that you're on and, yeah. and, and continue. Yeah. It's working. Like just, just whatever. The, the grass is always greener, of course. Yeah, stick to your game. So, Coach Fox, I, I want to call it like, I guess, your new product. I'll call it a product coming out on September 1st, 2023 here. And what excites me about it, 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 basically what it is, is you're replacing yourself with artificial intelligence. And I think about it in the business sense, you know, having like a, a, a knowledge base or a customer service agent you know, like literally embedded in Slack, a user in Slack that you can just ping and be like, hey, like, what's the answer to this question? It understands your entire knowledge base and all the call synthesizes every call you've ever had. I don't know how far your product goes. I haven't <laughs> talked to you about yeah. it before, but that's what I think about. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So Coachbox oh, AI, AI is, is that we're making artificially intelligent coaches and mentors based on real people. And it's actually quite funny. I've just realized how connected it is to this whole story because we've just been talking about how much I tried to take myself out of the picture by writing manuals. And now it's like taking, helping other people take themselves out of the picture by cloning themselves with AI. So it's very in line with just the whole freedom thing. Like if don't answer questions twice, train an AI to answer the questions for you and then be free forever to do whatever you want to do. Sit on the yeah. beach, doesn't matter, start a bigger business. But yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So we've got um we've got 80 founding creators on board who we have cloned, who have AI versions of them out there talking to their clients, acting as lead generation tools on their website. Some of them are charging for access to the AI version. Like I mean talk about scaling yourself to infinity it's like there is no work involved other than the training and they're charging ten dollars a month for access to an ai coach version of them and then yeah september the first 2023 we opened 250 more spaces for creators who want to do it as well wonderful and that's uh coachvox.ai v-o-x of course yeah i'm excited about that see that 
try that. You know, I think that for reference for people, I think that ranges from uh, $99 to $1,000 per month or, or something like that. I have no idea. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, the, it's pretty the creator, For creators, it's $99 yeah. a month. And it's, I mean, it's specifically for people who've already done the hard work because they've already got yeah. content. So they've already written the, written the book, written the articles, recorded the podcast episodes. It's like, this is where all that hard work they put in in the past now works for them because it can be yeah. literally like delivering on their behalf, looking after clients on their behalf while they're not working. Cool. Again, thank you for being here today coachfox.ai jody cook you can find her on twitter probably linkedin too um i think particularly she's a good twitter follow i've been following her for the past month and uh, i've i've enjoyed that so <laughs> thank uh, you anyhow thank you again i appreciate you being here and my last question for you would be if you could share one or two or even three whatever you got in you golden rules for business and or life literally anything what would those golden rules be so I would say the first one is something that I've been very much practicing in the last year, especially, and that's just simplify, simplify everything. Last year, I heard of this bias that humans often fall for, and it's called addition bias. And it's where whenever we're faced with any kind of problem or challenge, just our natural tendency is to add stuff. So we're like, oh, I'm not very happy, so I'm going to go shopping. Or we're like, oh, I've got this like problem with a, I don't know, a relationship or a friend or something, so I'm gonna, we're going to go for food or we're going to go add things. And it's always like add, 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 like tasks, responsibilities, everything else, when the solution is nearly always to cut stuff out. And so in, in line with simplifying, a big exercise that I do just a lot. Whenever I'm feeling a bit like, oh, something's not right here, take a blank piece of paper, draw a line down the middle horizontally and a line down the middle vertically and write start, stop, more and less and just focus on stop and less and do this big audit of your entire life and figure out what is in there that shouldn't be in there and free up the space for what actually matters. So simplify is a big lesson, golden rule for life that I definitely want to share. Jody Cook, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of Building Freedom. My only hope for this podcast, my aim is that this inspires you to build a freer, fuller life, one where you're not enslaved by a business, whether that be your business or any other business, whether you're a business owner or self-employed. The aim of this show is to help you build a freer, fuller life. And there are many ways to do that. And that's what we showcase on this show each week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, be well.